This is KMTT. Tuesday, Parshat HaShavua, will be delivered by Rav Alex Israel. It is with great excitement that this week we begin to open a new Sefer. We embark on a new tale, on a whole new chapter in the world of Chumash, opening Sefer Shemot with the devastating uh, tale of the Shibud Mitzrayim, the horrors of the slavery in Mitzrayim, and then moving on to the story of Moshe Rabbeinu and his appointment by God to be the leader of the Jewish people. And we start unfurling the amazing tale of Yitziat Mitzrayim as we open the book of Shemot. Now, whenever we read a book, any book, a person might come to us and say, what is the book about? What, what are you reading? And at times it is difficult to encapsulate a book in a short phrase, uh, to give it a, a heading or a comment. But uh, when we try to take a book, sometimes a book that we're familiar with, and we have to encapsulate it, we have to summarize it, that process of thinking forces us to define the central message, to examine the storyline of the book in question. This is true about any book, and it is certainly true about the Torah. Frequently, our Chachamim of various different ages try to give titles or themes for the book of Chumash and try to summarize them. And we find this, uh, whether in traditional Mufarshim, we find it in the period of Chazal, we find it in the Achronim. And uh, frequently we find these comments in the introductions to Sfarim, whether it is the uh, Hamek Davar who gives introductions to books, or, or whoever it might be, there are many Hakdamot to Sfarim, uh, which each try to frame and to give a certain perspective on, on the Sefer in question. And as we open the book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, we are going to turn our attention to the great commentator, the Ramban, and his introduction to the book. I'm not going to read out uh, all the lines of the introduction. Uh, it is quite uh, quite a masterpiece. And I'm going to ignore the section which deals with Sefer Bereshit. Um, and I'm going to begin with his encapsulation of Sefer Shemot. This is what he says. V'nitachet Sefer ve'ele Shemot b'inyan ha'galut harishon ha'nigzar b'feirush the book of Shemot is dedicated to the first Galut, the first exile, and to the redemption from it. So here the Ramban sets out the central theme, the central axis of this Sefer, of this book. It is about exile and redemption, Galut and Geula. But the Ramban doesn't stop here, and he adds the following explanation. He says... Well, first of all, he, he describes the fact that uh, Shemot begins with the descent to Egypt, a detail that we have already heard in Sefer Bereshit. And he said, why does the Torah need to repeat d- details, the list of the, the, the tribes coming down and the fact that the people um, who come down to Egypt number 70 souls? And uh, he says, because if you're going to start the story of the Galut, if you're going to start the story of the uh, slavery of the Jewish people of their exile, you have to begin with the descent to Egypt. 
Okay, point taken. But I'd like to focus on on a further point that the Ramban says. Bine hagalut enenu nishlam ad yom shuvam al mukomam vel malat avotam yeshuvu. He says that the exile is not complete. It's not. It's not ended until the Jewish people return to their land and to the spiritual level of their forefathers. The Ramban is assuming that there is both a physical, geographical dislocation of exile, that we're not in our country, but also a spiritual dimension to exile, that uh, we have to, in exile we drop a certain number of levels spiritually, we, we fall in our spiritual standing, and that we need therefore to return to the spiritual level of our forefathers. So he says, And when we came out of Egypt, or when they came out of Egypt, Even though they had come out of the house of slavery, of the house of bondage, Even though the Israelites experienced freedom, they are still in a state of exile. Why? Because they are in the wilderness, wandering in a land which is not theirs. When they come to Mount Sinai, and when they make the Mishkan, and when God comes and rests His Shekhinah, His Divine Presence, amongst them, as Shavu El Ma'alat Avotam, then they returned to the level of their forefathers, Shahaya Sod Eloha Alei Aholehem, which is the, and he uses Kabbalistic phraseology here, the secret of God upon their tents, the Heimeh Merkava, and that is the Merkava, Vaaz Nechshavu Gu'ulim, and then they will be considered to be redeemed. And therefore the book ends with the completion of the Mishkan and the Kvod Hashem Tamid and the fact that God's presence fulfills the Mishkan. This is a, a long uh, text from the Ramban and I'm sorry that I read it all out for you. Um, I will try and elaborate what, he, what the Ramban is saying but then trying to explain a little more. Um, the Ramban says that the exile has to be finished when we return to Eretz Yisrael, our land, and to the spiritual level of our forefathers. Now he says, leaving Egypt is just the first stage. When we leave Egypt, um, we have um, emancipated ourselves from, from bondage, from having to work for the Egyptians, from being incarcerated in another land but we have to move much higher than that. And what we have to do is, we have to get to Eretz Israel and to the level of our forefathers. So he says, when we reach Mount Sinai, and when we set up the Mishkan, and God returns to us, and God's presence rests amongst, among us, and he uses Kabbalistic phraseology of the Merkava, of the Shekhinah of God, then we're considered to be redeemed. So I want to make two observations on this Ramban. The first is that the Ramban, as we said, cast the book of Shemot as a book of exile and redemption. Sometimes if you ask people, what is the book of Shemot? They will say the book of Exodus. And uh, frequently, 
all people know is the first section of Exodus, the bit which we tell on Seder night, the maybe the story which is in the in the movie um, Prince of Egypt, where it begins with the slavery in Egypt as everybody is working hard building whatever they are building, pyramids or what have you, and it ends with Kriyat Yamsuf, with crossing the Red Sea. Maybe people also recall the war with Amalek or whatever it might be. It's already talking about chapter 17. But broadly, um, it is a case from slavery to freedom. It's a breakout of Egypt. And if that were true, then the book would close uh, after after Shirat Tayyam in chapter 15 as we leave the Egyptians drowned and we leave the borders uh, of, of the land of, of Egypt. We emerge from their control, their control physically, psychologically, and off we go to our freedom into the desert. But that is not what happens in Sefer Shemot. Sefer Shemot continues over 40 chapters, and it talks about, and broadly when we look at Sefer Shemot, we can divide Sefer Shemot into three topics. We can talk about chapter 1 to 15, Yitziat Mitzrayim. We can then talk about maybe chapter 16 to 24, which will form the unit of Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, and uh, maybe we could say the revelation at Sinai, the giving of the Torah, and the covenant which takes place at Sinai. And then the last section, which is from Perak Hafhei to Perak Mem, chapter 25 to chapter 40, is the construction of the Mishkan, and enveloped within that is the story of the Egel Hazahav. And the question is, how all of this fits into the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim? How does this fit into um, how does this fit into Sefer Shemot? I'd like to gain some insight into this by referring to an idea that was discussed by one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. Um, and I'm talking about Isaiah Berlin. Isaiah Berlin, in a celebrated essay written in the 1960s, I believe, I think it was actually his inaugural essay, his inaugural paper that he delivered in the University of Oxford, uh, he describes two types of uh, freedom, two types of liberty, negative and positive freedom. Let me try and explain what is negative liberty as opposed to positive liberty. Negative liberty is the absence of any constraints, any obstacles, any barriers. One has negative liberty when nothing imposes outside limits or restrictions to one's actions, and one is free of all of those um, restrictions, all of those things which are stopping you. But positive liberty is, is something more. Positive liberty is the possibility of acting, or the actuality of acting in such a way that you can take control of your life and realize your fundamental purpose. Um, Positive liberty expresses a positive worldview, a goal, a plan to realize that goal. Maybe it corresponds to what Rasulavitchik calls fate and destiny. Um, In in, in negative liberty, in a sense, uh, we are uh, somewhat passive. We are acted upon. We, we are incarcerated in prison. I can't do anything if I'm in jail. I can't do anything if I am in a state of being imprisoned. And therefore, when I free myself from that prison, I 
I, I now have uh, freed myself. I have now given myself that negative liberty because now nothing is stopping me from doing anything. But that doesn't tell me what I should do. But now what am I going to make of my life? Now I'm a free man. Okay, so now what am I going to do? Um, I can be free to make my own decisions. But positive liberty would say, now what am I going to going to do with that? Uh, I'm, I might be a free person, but I'm not free to practice medicine until I have... Uh, actually studied for many years as a doctor. And that gives me positive liberty. That gives me an ability now to practice medicine or to be a judge because I've now uh, studied in law school and I've now practiced in a in a law firm and now I have sat in court and now I have gone through the the various training procedures which takes me to be able to be a judge. Now I'm allowed to be a judge. And, and that can only happen through positive liberty. And there's something ironic here because... In order to achieve negative liberty, I don't necessarily need to do anything. I don't need to be active. I just need somebody else needs to open the iron gates. Somebody else needs to release my chains. But in order to achieve positive liberty, I actually need to do something. In fact, I would say more than that. Positive liberty, to actually achieve something with my life, frequently I have to bind myself to a system. I have to commit myself to a certain course of study or action which enables me to actually put myself on the path of achievement, put myself on the path where I can actually um, do something, do something of value uh, for myself or for society or whatever it might be. Shemot is not simply about freedom from bondage. It's not just about the exodus from Egypt. That is negative liberty. We have to get out of Egypt and we have to stop being controlled by the Egyptians. But the Ramban says that this is a book about exile and redemption. And the question is not so much whether man is free, but the question is what, is what man is planning to do with that freedom. Freedom becomes redemption when it leads to something higher. And in this case, we're talking about two things. We're talking about Matan Torah, getting the Torah at Har Sinai, and the sense of relationship with God. God's Shekhinah, God's proximity, expressed by God's manifest presence in the midst of the camp, and the most concrete representation of God's presence in the center of the camp of Bnei Israel is the Mishkan. And therefore the story of Sefer Shemot is not the manner in, in which we became free, it's not just about the escape from Egypt. It's about the development of a Jewish raison d'etre, a meaningful, purposeful Jewish culture, a sacred way of life. Um, and that gives us a sense of the entire structure of the Sefer. The Sefer is about achieving relationship with God. We begin without relationship with God. We begin in the depths of Egypt where... The people have virtually forgotten God. In Chazal's phrase, they have reached the 49th level of Tumah. They, they don't have that sophistication of relationship with God. And in fact, I, I, I believe that exile is not, as we said, just a geographical dislocation, but it always uh, has alongside it a sense of spiritual dislocation as well. And that. Spiritual dislocation is, is just as much part of the work that we need to do in Sefer Shemot 
as the, the physical situation of the Jews or the Israelites. So that's the first point and actually what we've managed to do in this description of Galut to Gulais is, is expand our horizons of what it means, of, of what Sefer Shemot is about. It's not about Exodus. It's not about slavery to freedom. It's much more than that. Slavery to freedom is just the first stage. But, and by the way, we, we can see this through all sorts of societies. When we have societies which we see as societies which represent oppression, uh, whether it is the communist regime um, in the former Soviet Union. So, so we have uh, the fall of the Soviet Union. We have the fall of the Berlin Wall. But then the question is, what society is going to replace that? We can take South Africa and we can break apartheid and we can uh, free the um, whole black community in South Africa. But the question is going to be whether this is going to be a... What, what society are you going to replace the situation with? Is it going to be a society of of crime? Is it going to be a society which is going to be give people opportunities for education and prosperity? Is it going to be a society which is going to sell itself out to uh, shallow consumerism? Is it going to be a society which is run by the mafia? What society is one going to build? And uh, this is a, a phenomenal question. Sefer Shemot answers that question by saying that we want to have a relationship with God. And therefore we march straight from Kriyat Yamsuf, from the Yamsuf, we march to Har Sinai, we make a covenant with God, we establish the ground rules, we establish the um, founding document of the Jewish people, the Torah, and then we have the sense of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, actually the, the, the concrete sense of relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which is, is, is indicated through the Mishkan itself. So that is the first uh, dimension of what I would like to say when we, we're looking at Sefer Shemot from a bird's eye view and we're trying to understand its contours. But the second point is, is a perplexing one within the Ramban and I'd like to hone in on this and I think we'll reach another a very important uh, point, uh, point here. There is a sort of uh, confusing line in the Ramban the Ramban Nachmazi says, we read it before, The exile is not complete, it hasn't uh, finished, until the Jewish people return to their land and to the spiritual level of their forefathers. But then he says, when they reach Mount Sinai and they set up the Mishkan and God returned to them establishing the Shekhinah amongst them, then they return to the spiritual level of their forefathers. Then the presence of God was upon their tents. And then they were considered to be redeemed. And therefore he says that the last lines of Sefer Shemot, correctly, are where it says that they have set up the Mishkan and God's presence is amongst them. Now there is an obvious contradiction here. In the first sentence, Nachmanides says that the end of the exile is a return to Eretz Yisrael. But in the second sentence, the Ramban admits that once the Torah has been received and God's Shekhinah has become associated with the nation through the Mishkan, they are now considered to be in a state of redemption. 
of fulfillment. And therefore, what is redemption? Is redemption Eretz Israel, or is redemption the relationship with God? If they are still in the Midbar, in the wilderness, can they experience redemption? Didn't the Ramban say we have to come back to Eretz Israel? But on the other hand, he says that just having a relationship with God is redemption. So, what's going on here? So I think there is a fundamental uh, point. The Ramban is setting up the fact, he, and he is accepting this as a given, that the redemption doesn't take place in one fell swoop. There are successive stages in, in, in the redemptive process. Now I think we all, we all know this. Our Psukim in the beginning of Parshat Vayera, we, 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 we know these from uh, our Jewish education in general. The four cups of wine reflect the four Lashonot of Gula, or maybe there are five, V'hotseti, V'hitsalti, V'ga'alti, V'lakachti, and maybe V'heveti. Now let me explain what that means. You will find these phrases in chapter 6 in Parakvav, where we are told a whole bunch of different uh, phrases which describe the process of our emergence and our freedom from Egypt. And there it says um, that God tells us that I will emancipate you from the slavery of Egypt, from the burden of Egypt, and I will save you from their service. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with uh, great judgment, and I will take you as a people. Now, one should notice that the first two phrases are salvation from negative freedom. I will take you out of the burden of Egypt. I will save you from their slavery. In other words, that is freedom from negative freedom. But the next two phrases are, I will redeem you and I will take you as a people. I will establish my ties with you. I will be for you as a God. In the next verse, it says, I will bring you to the land. The very fact that we can have four statements of redemption, indicates that each stage, why do we need four words if you could use one? The reason is because there are actually four stages of redemption. And each stage is a new, fresh dimension of Gula. In our Seder night, we say that we have four different cups in order to represent these four uh, expressions of Gula, and each cup is a cup in its own right. Each cup represents a step, a step in the process. Each cup has its own bracha. Each cup represents its own uh, whole world of redemption. What I'm saying is, is that gula is made up. Gula meaning redemption. Redemption is made up of small steps, and each step takes us closer to the ideal. Each step itself can be seen as uh, as a mini gula, um, which merits its own independent title. And therefore, matan Torah. Well, maybe I should start even before that. Obviously, when we when we emerge out of Egypt and we uh, defeat the Egyptians, that is stage one. 
Then we leave their borders, stage two. Then create Yamstuf, stage three. And therefore, Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah and the Mishkan, can also be considered to be Gula, even though the ultimate redemption, the return to Eretz Yisrael, is still in the distance, it still eludes us. And yet, we can still be considered to be Gu'ulim. We can still see ourselves as redeemed, even though the ultimate goal has has not yet been reached. I feel that this point is, is fundamental for our generation to grasp. And sorry to go a little bit into contemporary ideology here. Well, I'm not really sorry, but uh, I'm not trying to talk politics here. But I think that some people in our time refuse to see significance in Medina Israel. For them, they know the definition of Gula. The Gula is having the Beit Hamikdash rebuilt, having Mashiach come. All of the exiles suddenly gathering together in some sort of miraculous manner. They're waiting for world peace. They're waiting for, I don't know, the Tchiatamitim, the revival of the dead. And that is Gula perfectly defined in, in the classic sense. And, but the problem is that people say that anything that falls short of that Gula is by definition nothing. It is by definition Galut. They have, there are certain people who have an all-or-nothing approach to Gula, a black-and-white approach. Um, it is a, a binary <laughs> a binary system of zero or one, which offers nothing in between the two poles of Galut and Gula. And therefore, if we can't reach the bar, if we can't reach the threshold of Gula, then there is nothing in between. There are no steps that link Galut to Gula. We move from, you know, zero to one without any intermediary process. A huge quantum leap. By the way, this maybe is represented by the tradition mentioned by Rashi, that the Bet Migdash will descend in flames from heaven. If we have to build the Bet Migdash, then it takes a long time. But if it comes in flames from heaven, it comes in fire, then God is doing it, then it is imposed upon us, then it is immediate. But the Ramban here is teaching us a very different lesson about, about Gu'ula. He's saying that Gu'ula is a process. There are shades of grey between the, the, the black and the white. There are in-between stages of Gu'ula, maybe I might even say um, imperfect stages that lie upon that road from Galut to Gu'ula. And uh, this, is, this is exactly what we see uh, in the description of Sefer Shemot. Sefer Shemot takes us from a nation of slaves who do not have a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu to a state where there is a Mishkan which physically represents the presence of God in our midst. This is a huge difference as we see by the end of the Sefer an independent nation and not fully mature, not fully ready to take on all of the responsibilities of of nation building, and yet we've come a tremendous way, and at this stage the Ramban can appreciate that once we have reached the level of gaining our freedom, negative freedom, building our positive identity, where we have received the Torah, we've made a covenant of the, on the Torah, we've maybe already had our first hiccup with the Egel, and we have managed to pick ourselves up, or HaKadosh Baruch Hu has helped us pick ourselves up, and we have gone back on track to build the Mishkan, having HaKadosh Baruch Hu in our midst, 
that level can already be considered to be Geula, even though the ultimate Geula, reaching Eretz Yisrael and fulfilling our national aspirations, fulfilling the ultimate covenant of the Brit Benabatarim and the Brit Milah, still, still eludes us even at that early stage. So this is the what I've tried to do in today's shir is to track the broad brushstrokes of Sefer Shemot and and to, to demonstrate, uh, well, first of all, to learn the introduction of the Ramban and to uh, share with you some of the ideas which animate uh, the Sefer in a broad sense. I'd like to finish with uh, one further idea. And I'm going to relate, uh, and I believe this is an idea which runs through the entire Sefer, which is why I'm mentioning it. We're going to start with a very minor comment of Rashi, uh, almost bizarre Midrash that Rashi brings, but I actually think that this Midrash will hopefully act as a prism to focus on, on many other themes in the Sefer. We're all familiar with the dashing figure of Moshe in chapter 2 of this parasha. Perak Bet describes three stories in which Moshe swoops to the rescue of troubled people. In the first case, there is an Egyptian beating a Jew, and Moshe comes to the rescue and sees the disadvantaged and the oppressed and intervenes and kills the Egyptian. In the second case, two Jews are fighting, and he once again tries to intervene and to try and stop somebody becoming beaten. And in the third story, it is actually a case of non-Jews. The, he leaves Egypt and he is by the wellside in Midian and he sees the daughters of Yitro being taken advantage of by the local village boys and he intervenes to give the group of girls uh, water for their sheep. As we can see, there is an animated spirit of justice in the young Moshe where he cannot stand seeing injustice and he decides that he has to have the courage and the impetus to save the oppressed from their oppressor. And maybe we can fully understand why um, this becomes the three stories which we hear um, before Moshe is appointed as leader. Uh, I believe Nechama Leibovitz has a very beautiful article about this. In, in the scene where Moshe kills the Egyptian, there is a very bizarre Midrash. The Midrash um, addresses a difficult phrase uh, when, well, maybe I'll, I'll read the pasuk. You all know the story. He sees an ishmitzri makhe ishivri me'achav perek bet pasuk yud bet vayifen kovacho. He looks this way and that vayar ki einish. He saw there was no man. Maybe it means there was no man looking, or maybe there was no man to help. It's not clear. Vayach etamitzri, and he smote the Egyptian. It uses the word vayach vayitzmenehu bacho. He buried him in the sand. So he's killed the Egyptian. On the next day, he goes out and he sees two Hebrew men fighting. And he says, He says to the evil one, maybe the stronger one, the, the one who is doing the hitting, Why are you smiting your friend? And he said, Who makes you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me? Do you seek to kill me? Like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And that's when Moshe realizes that it's been found out, and off he goes. There is a, as I said, a very strange midrash, which Rashi brings, on this phrase, which means, 
the, the, the man said, do you seek to kill me? And it says, do you say to kill me? Rashi says, Here we see that, how did Moshe kill the Egyptian? He killed him by uttering God's explicit name. Now I recall learning this Midrash as a child, and I think even at a young age, I found this somewhat uh, bizarre. How can Moshe use God's name, God's powerful name, to kill the Egyptian? And yet this is what Rashi says, this is what the Midrash says. Now of course this Midrash is is not the Pshat, and I think we can quite clearly prove it. Even if Moshe had the power to use God's name to kill people, and again we wonder where he would have known that from. Um, the, the, the word used to kill the Egyptian is Vayach et Hamitri. However, in the very next verse it says, Why do you smite your friend? The same word, Vayach, Lama Take. Are we suggesting that when the two Hebrew men were fighting, that the one was hitting the other with God's name? Of course it used the words Vayach which means that Moshe took his uh, fist and hit him. Oh, I should add that in the Pasuk earlier it says, Surely the Egyptian was not smiting the Hebrew man, the Jew, um, with God's name. The word makeh here is used multiple times. And uh, therefore, I think the Pshat is very clear that Moshe, how should we say it? Moshe clobbered the Egyptian, he hit the Egyptian and he killed him. And therefore, where does this bizarre Midrash emerge from? The Midrash which says that Moshe used God's name. Um, I initially heard one explanation um, at university where it was suggested that the rabbis uh, in the Midrash living post-Bar Kokhba under Roman oppression were very much of a mindset that physical violence wasn't going to really get us anywhere, that the attempt in the Bar Kokhba revolt to regain Jewish independence by force of the sword uh, had failed miserably, and that now we turn our attention to the spiritual. And therefore, the power of the word, the power of God's name is the most powerful force, and therefore uh, one could say that they try to replace the violent Moshe, Moshe who in his first act for the Jewish people is actually an act of murder and maybe try to give Moshe a, a cleaner police record try not to see Moshe as actually murdering in his first act killing the Egyptian but rather uttering God's name a far more gentle and uh, spiritual act and, and more than that not to give Moshe not to leave Moshe as a role model that uh, we should engage in overthrowing our oppressors through acts of violence and through acts of uh, rev- physical revolution, but rather that we should use spirituality, we should use Torah, we should use Hakadosh Baruch Hu, the Shema Mufurash, um, as a tool in which to endure and to overthrow our oppressors, maybe sending the message, a more pacifist message, a more Galuti message, that um, it is through the word of God that we will prevail against our enemies, rather than through the force of our muscles, through our, through our sword and through our fists. Um, now, that might, there might be some truth in this approach. However, some years ago, I was giving a shear on, on Midrash, 
in the women's Bet Midrash in Efrat. And one of the women, when we studied this Midrash, um, made a, fab- a fabulous comment. And we were discussing, you know, how did he kill the Egyptian? Did he vayach? Did he use his uh, physical force? Or did he use the Shem HaMaforash? And a certain woman in the Shior said, well, doesn't Moshe have a difficulty knowing when to hit and when to speak? Uh, of course, she was referring to the case of the of hitting the rock or speaking to the rock, where Moshe the first time is told to hit the rock, but the second time he's told to speak to the rock. And uh, therefore, she was saying maybe this Ma'amar uh, Chazal, maybe this Midrash, already raises an interesting tension between what Moshe should be doing. Should he be be hitting or should he be speaking? Now I raise this because I actually think that this tension is very, very true. And uh, maybe we should pay attention to the word Vayach. I said Vayach means that uh, he actually hit him, the Moshe exerted physical force. However, of course, when we come to the Eser Makot, Eser Makot are actually God's force. And uh, what exactly is the force of Moshe? Or what is the force of Vayach? What is the force of when Moshe engages in the in Haka'ah? Is it God's power or is it Moshe's power? Maybe I should say that Moshe's hands, which here kill the Egyptian, later on at the end of the Sefer, we find Moshe's hands doing something very different. That Moshe actually... Uh, writes the second Luchot, he uses his hands to create Torah. And maybe we should mention that in between, we all remember Moshe's hands, by Yetet Yado, he spreads his hands over Yamsuf, the Yadav Shel Moshe Osot Milchama, the hands of Moshe which are, hand, which are thrust upwards in the war against Amalek. Uh, Moshe's hands seem to uh, undergo a metamorphosis where they go from the physical uh, act of uh, smiting the Egyptian through to the act of being an instrument of God's power until they actually end up writing the Torah. There's almost a spiritualization of Moshe's hand, which actually uh, are a spiritualization of Moshe himself, I think, as we go through the Sefer Shemot. But Sefer Shemot has a very, very interesting interplay which we're going to have to develop. And here I'm opening a topic which I hope we will develop in future Shirim. Uh, where is the real power in Sefer Shemot? Is the power in the actions of human beings, in the physical process of, of Gu'ula, in the physical process of national emancipation, of freedom movements? Is Moshe coming to Pharaoh as a freedom fighter, as a political activist, demanding human rights, demanding national freedom? Or is the real act... The real act which is going to bring freedom going to be the power of Hashem. And maybe Chazal, um, not intending to obscure the Pshat here, but actually rather intending to raise to the surface one of the phenomenal tensions of Sefer Shemot. Uh, where does the acts of man begin and when does the power of God begin? Um, in this very interesting phrase they say, What is more powerful? Is it the exercising of human force by Moshe, or maybe something even more powerful is the power of God, the power of the Shem HaMafurash, that later on when Moshe has to vayach, when he has to smite, his Eser Rakot actually used through the power of God, 
and therefore we're going to see in this Sefer a fabulous and fascinating interplay of human initiative and divine intervention. Uh, where What is the role of man and what is the role of Hashem in this process of redemption? And uh, we will unveil some of this discussion in the weeks ahead. Thank you very much for listening and wishing you all Shabbat Shalom.